Welcome to the party, pal. The Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Oh, baby. Across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Hello and good morning. Welcome to the program. By the way, the aforementioned website at MichaelDukesShow.com has lots of stuff for you, including links to the audio-only live stream. Uh, which you can use from the website or you can use the TuneIn Radio app to listen to the show anywhere with a smartphone. Plus, it's got links to the social media sites where we simulcast the radio show every morning, including on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And finally, it's got links to the podcast, which is available every day, usually within about 10 minutes of the show ending. You can get the podcast on CastBox, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and of course, my favorite, Spotify. Yeah, that's right. Spotify. Um, And if you subscribe, it just automatically downloads it to your device like immediately right afterwards. So it's kind of a cool thing. You should go check it out. Welcome to the Thursday program, Thursday edition of the show today. And uh, we've got uh, we've got some interesting stuff to talk about for sure. Coming up in hour two, Andrew Jensen from the governor's office uh, is going to be coming on board to talk about <clears throat> the uh, the uh, report that came out in February. It was a report from the Governor's Food Security Task Force. Um, it's uh, The t- report is titled Alaska Food Security and Independence Task Force Report. Uh, and it is, well, it's meaty. It's pretty, pretty darn meaty. And it covers all different kinds of uh, things, including... Uh, discussions on wild foods, production, processing, uh, uh, distribution, uh, access, waste recovery, all different kinds of stuff. It's like I said, it's pretty beefy. It's 160 pages long. Uh, And it was put together by the University of Alaska Fairbanks with the help of the Alaska Food Policy Council out of uh, Homer. Uh, When I first got the report, I tried to... um, well, I reached out to a bunch of people uh, to try and find out who would want to uh, come on and describe it to it, you know, describe the whole thing to us. And um, it, uh, well, I got, you know, it was a little bit of, well, nobody really wanted to talk about it except for maybe we can have the governor or the, the commissioner. And next thing you know, it was all the way up to uh, Andrew Jensen, which is good. I'm excited to hear from him and find out exactly, you know, what what is the, what is the report you know, saying and what is going to happen now that we have the report, how does it help us? And how do we as Alaskans help to create more food sustainability uh, and security here in the state of Alaska? Because as we know, from an economic standpoint, it's kind of hard because we do not have the population base to make a lot of our own food 
manufacturing, I guess, as you were, growth, uh, distribution. We, it's just not economically viable since they're, generally speaking, is a cheaper alternative by just bringing food up from outside. But that makes us vulnerable, as we saw um, during the uh, during the pandemic. Um, I mean, not only was the lower 48 having all kinds of problems, but it just exacerbated the problems here up at the end of the supply chain. So it's something that I think we should talk about, and we need to we need to work on it, and we need to figure out more as we go forward. But uh, hopefully, uh, we'll get some answers. Andrew Jensen again going to be with us in hour two to talk about it, but not for the full hour, or uh, I think it's basically just for one long segment, and then maybe we'll take some phone calls and talk about that as well. I, I want to get some other folks on board. To, I, I want an in-depth discussion on this topic because I think it's important. Um, and I think it, um, I think it's something that many folks don't really think about. Uh, so maybe we'll have a longer discussion after we get done with, uh, with, uh, Andrew Jensen and we'll, we'll kind of pontificate on it a little bit as we go through. But anyway, that's in hour two today. In hour one, we're going to have some talk there's a few headlines, but really today is going to be a day, uh, an hour about the concept of free speech. Now, if we we if we run out of steam on this, we've got some headlines and stuff that we can talk about, uh, including. <clears throat> I will say this: I was pretty happy to see that the Senate has approved uh, SB forty five. Uh, on an 18 to 2 vote, uh, SB 45 is the uh, concierge care bill that allows uh, doctors to put together programs for a subscription-based um, health care uh, for folks. So if you pay a doctor's office a monthly fee, it could be a high or a low monthly fee, depending on what level of care you want. Um, and the problem was is that uh, many states would regulate that like insurance and it it was just we we talked we had a guest on the program here a couple months ago that talked specifically about this and how important it was to offer this kind of this is a new type of healthcare outside of insurance companies and everything else and especially for people who don't have um regular insurance this is it's extraordinarily beneficial and i think could fundamentally change the way we do healthcare um, I personally am kind of excited about it, um, but I'm happy to see that it did pass the Senate um, <clears throat> 18 to 2. Um, it doesn't say who voted against it, and I have not gone and looked it up to see who voted against it, but uh, it seems like it's a pretty pretty good idea. Uh, it's going to House Labor and Commerce, uh, scheduled for a hearing at 3.15 p.m. this Friday, so tomorrow, 3.15 p.m. So that's the, that's the good news. All right, I want to talk a little bit about um, free speech. And unfortunately, it appears these days that free speech, well, it's, it's not as free as we'd hoped. It's not, it's not as free as we uh, had hoped. And in fact, in some cases, um, it, could, it could cost you a ton of, a ton of money. A ton of money. Uh, I'm going to talk uh, about the free speech aspect in a couple different ways. First and foremost, I guess I will talk about my own experience. And this was from yesterday. Now, yesterday we talked about a lot of different things. But one of the things we talked about 
was an opinion piece that was in the uh, Alaska Beacon. You'll remember it was the it was the piece by Larry Persilli where the headline read uh, that it's time to rip the Band-Aid off uh, of, of, of the tax discussion. During our discussion on that piece, uh, both on the air and off the air, uh, during that discussion, I put the link for the article in a comment on my own video, right? So that the people who are listening or watching could go out and look at this video or look at this, uh, look at this article. Um, and when I got done with the show, I was closing everything down and doing what I normally do at the end of the show, putting the podcast together and everything else. But as I was shutting everything down and getting everything, I got a pop-up warning from Facebook and, um, which is, I, I'm, you know, we, we don't really do anything, I guess, truly controversial on the show because, I mean, it, it hasn't been a real problem. I think the last time I got a pop-up from Facebook, it was because I had used a 15-second piece of some copyrighted pieces of, uh, piece of music uh, that they were like, you know, naughty boy, don't use copyrighted music on your, on your thing, uh, you know, kind of thing. So the pop-up popped up at the end of the show, and it said... Your post goes against our community standards on hate speech. No one can see your post. We have these standards because we want everyone to feel safe, respected, and welcome. If your content goes against our community standards again, your account may be restricted or disabled. You can disagree with the decision if you think we got it wrong. Now, I went back and because I was like, all I did was post the link. I didn't say anything in the, I didn't type anything in the chat. I didn't do it. And I just went back and looked and sure enough, all I had done was drop the hyperlink, the URL for the actual article from the Alaska Beacon, which could arguably be said to be almost the, the, the paper of record for the state now. They're doing a lot more in-depth reporting than, uh, than the ADN. And, and it's not a, the the Alaska Beacon is made up of reporters from the various news outlets that have been around for years. It's got kind of a liberal slant to it to begin with. So this is not some kind of conservative. It's not like I dropped a must read article or something in there. And so I got this pop up and I'm like, OK, I don't have time to deal with this. I'll come back. So I went to my office um, in Anchorage and my Facebook happened to be open on my computer there. When I sat down, the pop-up was there again. So I started, okay, now I'll go through the whole process. I'll go through because the, there's a, you know, continue button, you click it and it takes you through some windows and it talks about what hate speech is. Now I should have screenshot every window on this just so that I could save it for you and give it to you. But anyway, it hate speech, right? Hate speech. I linked a news article from a legitimate news source in the state of Alaska, not even one that necessarily aligns with my own viewpoint, but it's, that's all I did. I just let, I didn't make a comment. I didn't say anything snarky. All I did was put the URL in and hit enter. So it goes on and on about this hate speech. And I get to the final window and it says, what would you like to do? Your post goes against our community standards on hate speech. So no one else can see it. Now, remember, in the first screen, it said you can disagree with the decision if you think we got it wrong. When you get to the last screen, there's only one option. There's a radio button that says, which is a little dot button, that says accept the decision. And there's nothing else. And if you click the radio button on, 
then the continue button lights up. If you accept, but if, I mean, that was it. I had no other choice. I had, I had no other, there was no choice to disagree with a decision. So I started opening up other windows and looking in the back end and looking in my, you know, for the back end of the show page and everything, trying to find, there was not even a notification in my, in, in my notifications for the show page to say that I had been warned or anything else. There was no other, there, for nothing. Now, how they would tag this as hate speech, I don't understand. I mean, I, mean I, I, I literally was just flabbergasted. And the fact that they said, you can disagree with the decision if, we think, if you think we got it wrong. Okay, that's what I was trying to do, but there is no outlet to do so. When you get to the final, you either accept it or, but, so I just closed the window because there was no way to continue without accepting the decision. But this is, now, look, I know that there's not some human being back there um, you know, pulling the pulling the strings on this deal. There's some algorithm or AI that's flagging stuff, and then you've got to escalate it to get a human involved to actually look at what's going on. But when they have taken the ability for you to even um, disagree with the or, with the organization's uh, you know ideas or with their their you know their AI's uh, uh, tagging of you, what does that say about free speech? In general, it, it's just now Facebook is a private company. They can do anything that they want to do. They, I mean, that's they're allowed to do anything that they want to do. But in many ways, they have become the de facto marketplace uh, for conversation and ideas. Now, maybe to a greater or lesser extent, maybe they're on the maybe they're on the descend instead of on the ascension because they've had so many problems uh, and everything else. But Really, it's one of the it's, you know, probably the major social media platform on the planet, probably used by more people from different age groups and everything else. I mean, TikTok is the is the new one for, you know, all the younger generation. But I mean, Facebook probably used by a much broader demographic than than any other social media platform. But when they come down to this and you start talking about how does posting a link not to some weird you know, they're putting fluoride in the water, turning the frogs gay, Alex Jones thing, or something else. This is to a, just a, an, a, a piece in a legitimate news out. How does that even work? I mean, that just how does that even work? And uh, especially since, you know, we're live streaming it. Now, I know a lot of people have said, well, you can, you know, go to Rumble and you could do. And, and I may. I may add that to my repertoire if uh, Facebook, you know, continues to do this kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, is that the metrics show me time and time and time again that the majority of the audience that's enjoying the show on the simulcast is coming from Facebook. Um, and with some from YouTube and a few from Twitch, but mostly from Facebook. So I, I can add another, another um, uh, you know, uh, arrow in my quiver, I guess, with one other thing. But if it's happening to me and all I did was drop a URL in there, 
What is it doing to everybody else? How is that speech free? And this is just a reminder that we we need to be paying close attention to everything that's going on uh, in, you know, in there. This is it just it was so it was so frustrating and shocking to me that when you don't even have the ability to fight back or the ability to disagree, even though they said you could. But then they take away all the options. It's insanity. It's it's just insanity. Um, it's possible somebody said in the chat room, it's possible somebody reported your post. I guess all the all the post had was, a, again, a link to a news story with no commentary at all. Maybe it's possible. I, I don't know. It's it's. But we're going to keep talking because mine is not the only instance of this that came out of uh, came to light yesterday. We got another one, too, that we're going to talk about. All right, the Michael Duke Show continues. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. What is that? Common Sense. Regularly heard on American radio. Michael Duke Show. Yeah. It's just insane. You know what I I mean I I clicked I kept clicking back and forth through all the windows. I mean you could see at the bottom of the of the the bottom there it's got the little continue button in blue on the left image and then the, the other one's grayed out on the right image. There was like three pages, three windows in between as you click through them. And they talk here's our definition of hate speech and all the things you could And I'm thinking I didn't have any speech involved at all other than I shared an article Again, from a mainstream news source, and again, this whole thing is that you can disagree with a decision if you think we've got it wrong, and blah, 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 and I just, it's infuriating. It really is. Now, again, they're a private organization. They can do whatever they want, but at least don't, you know, don't tell me that I can disagree and challenge it and then not give me the options to do that. I mean, um, I just. You know, Ugh. and then for all the people out there who are like, well, you should just quit Facebook. And most of you are who are telling me that are on Facebook telling me to quit Facebook. Facebook is an easy. Now, here's the thing. If you if you want to help me. Go over to my YouTube channel and subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube, ring the little bell for notifications on YouTube after you hit the subscribe button. And maybe we'll, maybe you guys can all move over to YouTube. But I mean, I'm, I can't dump from the, from the, uh, uh, from the simulcast aspect. I can't dump Facebook because it has the most, it has the most viewers. I mean, it's got, it's got the majority of the lion's share of the viewers at any given time. Facebook usually has, about 60 to 70% of the viewers that we have in the chat room are coming from Facebook at any given time. There are 50, what is it, 52 right now in the chat room, and 38 of you are watching on Facebook. I could see the numbers here. So, I mean, <clears throat> it would be great. 
And like I said, some other platforms are starting to make some moves. Rumble is one of them. I've been watching that. I have a Rumble account, but I've never set it up because they didn't have live streaming to begin with. But maybe that's something we'll have to look at in the future. But I would add it. I would not subtract Facebook because Facebook is still, you see what I'm saying? Anyway, it's, uh, it was curious. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm just, again, a little flabbergasted when they say, you're welcome to disagree with us, but then take away all my options to disagree. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, their, their metrics and their algorithms apparently are weird. And then here you go. No, no soup for you. No soup for you. No, no disagreement. You will all agree or not. So anyway. Um, okay, let me go back up to the chat room real quick here. Um, uh, everybody, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, I don't trust. Uh, let's see. Food sovereignty, subsidies, House Ways and Means passed the constitutional and statutory PFD bills last night, said Donna. Yeah, that's awesome news. I think we need like a news feed strictly for what's going on in Ways and Means because none of the mainstream outlets are touching it hardly at all, what happens in Ways and Means. Um, Facebook is a censorship machine. Twitter is the platform of the future. I don't know. Twitter just irritates me. The whole thing on Twitter is just... Um, it probably, the word bandage, because the word bandage was in the title of the article, maybe it's COVID. I don't, but that would be misinformation. That wouldn't be hate speech. That would be misinformation. Um, because that's got its own, its own thing. Um, let's see. I'm sorry. I just want to go, just going through everything. YouTube has their problems too. Audience just isn't flexible enough to switch to Rumble. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If I switch to Rumble, would all of you folks go out there and create a Rumble account to do it? Doubtful. All right. Well, here we go. Jumping back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> pinch of intellect. Sorry. That is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. Yep. Uh, hey, it's me. Just the pinch of intellect today. That's all I brought with me. I got more, but I only brought a little bit of it with me this morning. All right. Um, welcome back to the show. We're talking about free speech. And I was just, was I whinging? What is it that what the British would call it? Stop your whinging. Okay, all right. I might be whinging a little bit. Um, uh, stop your whinging on the whole. So, but again, it's just kind of crazy with social media since, again, uh, Facebook is the de facto um, <laughs> is the de facto social media for us. I was going to say boomers, but I'm not a boomer. I'm a Gen X. So for okay, boomer, uh, you know whatever. Uh, so uh, that's that was the the first that was the first in uh, run in that I had yesterday with free speech. And then one of my friends from Homer sent me a letter last night and said, "What the actual?" Um, my friend Greg got a certified letter from the state of Alaska. 
and uh, it was uh, and it was a surprise. And the letter was from APOC, the Alaska Public Offices Commission. And the letter states, uh, "Dear sir, according to our records." You have not filed your statement of contributions report that was due on November the 14th, 2022. Every individual, person, non-group entity, or group that contributes $500 or more in a calendar year to a group organized for the principal purpose of influencing the outcome of a ballot proposition must file a statement of contributions disclosing the contribution and the total amount of contributions to the group within 30 days of making the contribution. Failure to timely file a report results in the assessment of civil penalties for failure to comply with the provisions of the Campaign Disclosure Law under Alaska Statute 15.13. As of the date of this letter, your statement of contributions report is 175 days late, and the accrued maximum penalties that may be assessed is $8,750. This penalty continues to accrue by law at a rate of $50 per day until your statement of contributions report is filed. To stop the accrual of penalties, you must file your statement of contributions report after your statement is filed, you will be notified of the assessed penalty amount. You have the right to appeal this assessment of the penalty. Boy, does that sound familiar. To do so, you must submit your delinquent report and the enclosed appeal affidavit to the commission within 30 days. APOC staff will review your affidavit and prepare a recommendation for the commission. So you can... And and this is, I mean, my mind was just immediately blown on this. So that means that you can donate $500 to a candidate. You can donate $500 to a cause. You can donate $500 to just about anything else, uh, PAC, every, everything else. But if you donate $500 or more to a group organized for the principal influence of uh, an outcome of a ballot proposition, you have to file a statement of contributions disclosing the contribution and the total amount of contribution to the to, – and my question is, first and foremost, just a clerical question at this point. Why? Because you, APOC, obviously were able to look at the contribution report from the group itself, the ballot measure group itself, and you were able to see that my friend donated to him, and in what amount, because it was over $500, and because you saw, why does he need to file another piece of paper to say that he did what you already know he did, and that's why you sent him the letter for it in the first place. The what? And $8,700? I mean, first of all, you know, after it was 30 days late, maybe you should have sent the letter then. But you waited 175 days so that you could put this big, massive number in this letter to scare the bejesus out of people. And then you're going to put it in? You wait almost six months before you... What? 87... Now, <clears throat> I didn't reach out to APOC because uh, he sent this to me late yesterday afternoon. 
And uh, I have some folks that I know that work in APOC, uh, but I can guarantee you here's what the answer would be. Well, that that is the maximum penalty. That is the maximum penalty. You know, it even says right there in the letter, the accrued maximum penalty may be assessed at 8750 It's a scare tactic, but they have the option to do it, right? 87 dollars and $50 a day in your... Uh, in your state. I mean, this is this not politically protected speech? I mean, didn't we just lift the caps on how much you could donate to various candidates because it's protected political speech? And yet you are going to but now you're going to make us file a report, essentially beg the government's permission to to do that. I mean, there is no other as a private individual there is no other thing that you have to do to you know that where you have to go file to APOC to you know you you drop a, a check for five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars into your local assembly member or your local uh, 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 you know representative or center you know you drop that money you don't have to go file a separate report to do that but with this one you do and then they don't tell you that it's late until a hundred and seventy five days later. Meanwhile, they've been crewing $50 a day. What kind of BS is this? And and here's the thing. My friend is just one person. How many people out there are in the, in the state that yesterday or the day before or today are going to receive a letter that says exactly the same thing? What kind of free speech is that? I'm not talking about a polit. I've run for office. I have dealt with APOC. I got a fine one time because I didn't fill out a form that I didn't know that I was supposed to fill out. And I had to pay a $180 fine or something like that. But I got it squared away. I can understand it as a as a group. If you are the group that's that's advocating for something or if you are the candidate or whatever, fine. I fill out paperwork showing where my contributions came from, who did it, all the who's he what's, got all the information I, w- I need. I did all that. But a private citizen just wants to donate money to a cause. And now you've got a pencil whip of form for some bureaucrat in some office somewhere, basically having them check off on your right to free speech. And again, you could write a $500 check to, you know, Lisa Murkowski's campaign, or you could write a $500 check to the dog catcher's campaign, local dog catcher's campaign. and. You don't have to fill out an additional form after writing your check. Why is it with this one that you have to fill out? And and uh, and again, if it was late, why didn't you send a thirty day late notice? I mean, that still would have been what is it fifteen hundred bucks? Still would have been fifteen hundred dollar fine, but you waited until almost six months. Now, again, they'll say maximum penalty will probably waive it. Maybe it'll be a few hundred dollars. Maybe it'll be. That's insane. That is insane. And quite honestly, I wouldn't pay. They would have to trust me. They this this if I had received a letter like this. Oh, it would be game on, folks. Game on. And I'm usually pretty chill about the APOC folks because there's some nice people that work there. I've worked with some of them. 
uh, and they are very understanding, very helpful, very good. But this just seems, well, punitive at this point. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm shocked right down to my socks on this one. And you should be too. You should be worried about this. I mean, if you can contribute to any other cause out there, but just because this is a, uh, because just because this is a group that was trying to influence a ballot proposition, they treat it so differently. I, you know, and again, how many more people out there donated more than $500 to this cause and are getting these letters today? I mean, I sure would like to see a news article. I'd like to see some news articles written about this. I'd like to see some phone calls placed to APOC about this. Because, I mean, maybe there's 100 people that donated $500 or more. I don't know. I should have gone over to APOC's website this morning and looked at the looked at the group's contribution report to see how many people over, paid over $500. But I guarantee you there are dozens of these letters going on out there today. And that these people are getting the shock of their life. Hmm. I think the first thing that I would do would, well... I won't even say. I just, there is no way. This was a $500 contribution to the Convention Yes campaign. How many people contributed? How many listeners out there contributed to Convention Yes? And if you contributed over $500, guess what? I'm thinking that you can expect one of these in the mail yourself. You may be looking for that certified letter. If you donated $500 or more to Convention Yes. So much for free speech. I mean, that one's only going to cost him $8,700, right? The Michael Duke Show continues. we got more coming up. Andrew Jensen in Hour 2 talking food security. We'll be back with more. One final segment before we go over the top of the hour. Back with more right after this. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these uh, entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay. Uh, Hi. Welcome back to the... uh, Welcome back to the thing. Um, I'm going back to the top of the thing here. Uh, uh, you, you and Tucker can host a show on the Twitters. Uh, well, it's interesting. Tucker made the announcement that he's got a new show on Twitter and then Elon Musk, uh, tweeted out that there was no agreement yet. So I don't know if that was a, uh, I don't know if that was a, uh, a, a maneuvering posture for negotiations on Tucker's part or what, but uh, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, 
let's see. What is different about Rumble? Rumble's just a different platform, um, but it's more limited in its reach because it only talks to folks uh, who are mostly right of center. It doesn't, you know, nobody else is going to find something on there that is moderate or left of center. Um, anyway. Uh, Lynn McCabe said, several people received that letter. If you file the report, the fees will be waived. Okay, Lynn, that's fine, except for why should I have to file a report for this one instance of political speech when all the other stuff is allowed? And and if they had said that, the maximum penalty could be $8,700, but we can waive the fees if you t- if you do it now. Then, I mean, to, this is... It's, well, it's a scare thing. It's a scare. I mean, if you open up a bill and said, by the way, your fees and penalties are up to $8,700, I about poop myself if something like that came through on my end. Like, what? But then I got angry because I'm like, wait, I can donate a thousand bucks, right? 1500 bucks to whoever, whatever candidate I want. And all I have to do is write the check and hand it to them. I don't have to fill out another sheet and form and, and dot the I's and cross the T's. And the bottom line is they already have the information because convention, yes, or any other organization has to file an APOC report with the name, the address, the amount from each and every one of these people. Why do they need a second chunk of paper saying, yes, I did give that on this in this one group, this one subset, because they just happen to be supporting a ballot measure? I mean, it's. Yeah. Lynn said hers was over $9,000 and someone else had one for over $12,000. Well, um, good luck. Good luck. Um, yeah, Josh Church has one for over $12,000. APOC needs to, needs to go away. They cost the state over a million dollars a year. Um. If you are if you are affected, I think is what he meant to say, if you are affected and file your paperwork right away, they will waive all fines. That statute needs to be fixed. Oh, here's my question again. Why did we wait six months? I mean, if you're not going to get the paperwork in 30 days, you'd think a standard notice for a 30-day would go out. Why wait six months? And then why not say in the thing your maximum penalty could be X number of dollars, but if you file right away, we will waive the fe- we will waive the penalties. I mean, am I wrong? Should I not get burned up about it because oh, they'll just waive the fees on the other end? Should I not get spun up about that because oh, they're just saying that in the letter, but they'll actually waive the fees? I mean, this is that, trust me, that's a shock for people. Maybe people in the know will be like, oh, no big deal. I'll just file it and it'll go away. But people who are not politically savvy, who've not dealt with APOC before, who are not familiar with this, that's okay. (sighs) 
you know how they're always talking about new revenue streams, right? Says Brian. Yeah, that's a new revenue stream. Boy, don't you dare donate to conservatives. Uh, the issue, and again, Greg says right here, the issue is they don't explain that in the letter, meaning that you can waive everything. Ballot measure number two, the gift that keeps on giving. Again, it's amazing that this is the only component where you are required to file a piece of paper with the government to exercise your free speech in that way. Please, sir, may I have another? If it pleases the king, I would like to exercise my rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Harold, just shut up. Jeez. He doesn't, he doesn't like what we're talking about, but he doesn't know where the off button is. <laughs> uh. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. <laughs> Whew, I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. Well, interestingly enough on this, uh, some folks in the know uh, are in the chat room talking about this. Apparently, there's about 20 people who are affected by this. Uh, Some of the others in the chat room received the same letter. Uh, Somebody got a bill that said it was 9,000. Lynn in the chat room said she got the same letter, but hers was over 9,000. And one of my other acquaintances got one that was the the fine was over 12,000. Now, some other, you know, some of the folks are in the chat room saying, oh, hey, you know, it's it's no big deal. If you file it, the fees will be waived. Okay, but that's not the point. That that to me is not the point. First and foremost, they don't say that anywhere in the letter. Let me let me let me just read this for you again verbatim. Because nowhere in there do they say, if you file immediately, we can waive that. What it says is, uh, as of the as of the date of this letter, your statement or contributions report is 175 days late, and the accrued maximum penalty that may be assessed is $8,750. Oh, and this penalty continues to accrue by law at $50 per day until your statement of contributions is filed. It doesn't say that if you file, we will wipe away the late fees and the penalties. It doesn't even hint at that. It says after your statement is filed, you'll be notified of the assessed penalty amount. So while I appreciate people saying, well, this is what they're doing, they're really just wiping it all out, that's all well and good, but they don't say that anywhere in this threat letter. Again, demanding that you toe the government line for exercising your free speech. Now, maybe I'm just a little pissed because of the whole thing with the Facebook thing earlier or whatever, but this just kind of rattled my cage a little bit and upset me even more. Because again, I can write a $500 check to any candidate out there, any other issue that's going on, any other... But because it was a ballot initiative, 
Now I have to file an extra piece of paper, again, on information that they already have. They sent these letters out to people because these people's names appeared on the Convention Yes APOC report for contributions. They already know it happened. Now I have to file a second report as an, as an individual to contribute? They've already got the information. Now, I know the argument will be, well, it's APOC. They're just following the law. And this is ballot measure number two, the gift that just keeps on giving, uh, yada, yada, yada. But I don't know. There has to be a point of civil disobedience at some point when these kind of laws come up. And you're going to be like, I'm not going to comply with that. In fact, I'm not even going to file the freaking report that you're asking for. Good luck. Oh, I'm just, I'm so... I'm getting so bent out of shape about this. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, yeah. And now Greg says, well, maybe I'll just limit my donations to $499.99. I mean, it follows the letter of the law. But that's, that is just, that is insane. $12,000? That's one of the one of the Josh Josh Church got it twelve thousand dollars. So anyway, sorry. So much for free speech. So much for free speech. This was all from pro- this is this 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 is a new twist because of ballot measure number two. This this reporting requirement was one of the oh wait you didn't know. That, yeah, that was buried in the 26 pages of instructions for those of you who, you know, who filed and uh, and voted for ballot measure number two, the rank choice. You know, all it was supposed to do was eliminate dark money, right? So this is how they eliminate the dark uh, money. Um, <clears throat> the, the gift that just, it's like herpes, man. It's the gift that just keeps on giving can't believe it um all right um i just i dive i'm so pissed off now i don't even know what to talk about because this is just burning me up now again i'm there are some great people at apoc so let me first say that right off the bat but whoever approved the verbiage in this letter needs to be just thumped repeatedly over the whole, I mean, what were you thinking? If the if the practice is to waive the fees, if somebody files because they didn't know they were in compliance, right? They didn't know they had to file. This is not common knowledge, and it's brand new. Uh, obviously, it came from you know twenty twenty ballot measure number two. I mean, it's brand new, and so they they had no idea. And if the and if the policy is to waive the fees and do why don't you say that in the letter to them instead of scaring the pants off of them? Because I don't know about you, I don't know how many people have eight thousand dollars just laying around that you could just throw at a problem like this. Some of us do, some of us don't. Maybe it's a big chunk of your nest egg. Maybe it's a big chunk of your emergency fund. But you see that eight, nine, twelve thousand dollars for simply trying to exercise free speech? 
So who who is the uh, you know who is the genius that signed off on the verbiage of this letter? You could still comply with the law without scaring the pants off of everyone. Anyway, I um, I I I'm just so you know we've seen so many infringements on so many rights over the years, but when it comes down to this, and and the fact is, is that we just eliminated the cap on contributions to politicians and everything else, uh, you know, and some of the PACs and everything. That and but now there's a limit, and you have to file paperwork on this other thing, and it's just people had no idea what they were voting on when they voted for ballot measure number two. They were sold a bill of goods. They were bamboozled by the whole thing, and it is the it is the gift that we'll just keep on giving. What other things did we not notice were wedged down into that bill in that twenty six pages of instructions for voters? who just thought they were getting rid of dark money. Uh, I mean, I would... Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's so irritating. I mean, I didn't even, I didn't even see that in the rules when I, because I, like I said, I got to like page 17 of the instructions in the voter manual and I either missed it or it was in the last eight pages that I didn't bother to read because I said, nope, I'm not voting for this. This is way too much. But I wasn't even aware that on a ballot measure, you now, as an individual contributing something, you had to file paperwork with APOC. Because that just seems arbitrarily not right. Um. And Lynn says it's not ballot measure number two, it's convention. Yes, I understand you're talking about you are having to file because of contributions to convention. Yes, I'm talking about the law that we're discussing came about because of ballot measure number two. The, the Where it requires you to file with APOC is because of ballot measure number two. So there you go. That's the, that's the answer there. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, um, um, <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit more about food security and some of the self preparation and some other things, but this got me kind of uh, wound up. Um, uh, we'll uh, we'll continue <laughs> we'll continue this discussion later. I'm sure. But uh, there you go. Uh, we will uh, we'll, we're going to jump into it. So coming up next, we've got this new uh, report coming from uh, the uh, governor's task force on food policy. Uh, it was a report, the Alaska Food Security and Independence Task Force report for 2023. Uh, it was published by the University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Alaska Food Policy Council. Big media report. Uh, that covers a lot of the issues on food security and food sustainability. 
and we're gonna get some we're gonna get some details on it. Where at least, I mean, we only got about 20 minutes with him, so we're not gonna get it's 160 pages long. We're not gonna get through the whole thing, but we'll get a good overview, and then we'll figure out what exactly we as individuals can do to help with food sustainability and security, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Andrew Jensen, the governor's office, is gonna be joining us here in just a minute. Uh, and we'll go over those things. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, Free Thing at Radio. Back with more in just a moment with our new guest, Andrew Jensen. Don't go anywhere. If you got to go to work, be kind, love one another, live well. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. Okay. Uh, I didn't mean to get so spun up this morning. I was just so irritated by this whole thing. Um, I really kind of wanted to do a little bit of prep going into this discussion with Andrew and spend the last segment talking about that, but so much for the, the best laid plans of mice and men. All right. I see that Andrew is in the... Uh, He's in the green room right now. We're going to jump over to him here in just a hot second. Uh, let me clear up these last comments um, and see what's going on. Jeannie says four hundred ninety nine ninety nine. That's what will. That's what people will be com- be contributing. Um, the bamboozlement is the problem, Michael. Who is dark money? Can we ferret them out and tell them about them? It's a stupid rule. It is a stupid rule. Uh, but again, that's what it was all about, right? We're eliminating dark money. Um, okay. All right. There we go. I'm just going through the, I, I, I can see the comments and going through here. Freeze dryers and abundant harvests until all goes to hell. Well, we're going to talk about that as well. Um, I can give you a cliff notes of the report, says Anthony. I can give you a cliff notes of the report. Clear throat. Almost all these people are going to die when the lights go out and have unrealistic fantasies of hunting for moose against the entire state. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're not, you're not wrong in that regard. But we're going to talk about how to try and set things up so maybe we won't have such a high failure rate if something like that ever happens and the supply chain ever gets interrupted in that way. All right. Enough of my yammering. Let's get over to uh, let's get over to the uh, green room here and we'll get things set up. We're about uh, four and a half minutes from returning to the radio with Andrew Jensen. But let's uh, let's get him to join us. We'll test some audio and see how things are going. Uh, Good morning, my friend. How are you? Hey, Michael, good to see you. Uh, thanks for coming on board and joining us. I appreciate that. I'm getting a little bit of an echo here. Let me make sure that the echo, uh, um, make sure that the echo cancellation's up. It is on. Okay. Well, if you would keep my volume to you as low as possible, that will hopefully prevent some of the echo coming back. All right, I'm going to turn my computer audio down a little bit. There you go. How's that? That seems to be a lot better for me. Okay. As long as you can hear okay. me. There you go. All good? Yep, I can hear you. All right. 
That's all good. A little bit. That's a little bit better. All right. Uh, so, Andrew, um, before we come on, uh, tell me again your official title and why you are the head cheese when it comes to discussing this report. <laughs> well, um, so the I started off in the governor's office as communications assistant. So basically, his ghostwriter, you would say, speechwriter, op-eds, um, press conferences, you know, talking points, those kind of things. Um, I went with the governor to an event down in Colorado um, last March, March of 22. Um, it was a global health forum, and there was just you know a lot of you know energy around food, food as medicine, these kind of things. You know, the food security issue for the governor is a really big deal. He had already formed the task force at that point, going back to COVID, when there was some rumors, um, thankfully unfounded, that the port of Seattle was going to close. Right, and as well, of well, of course, we know that would have let's, been devastating for Alaska. Let me interrupt you just for a second here, Andrew, and I sure. apologize. I don't want to get too far into the story um, about how things got started um, because I don't want you to have to repeat yourself on the radio. What? Yeah. You, so you're basically you're you're a you're a press secretary liaison, uh, talking. That's you're the talking yeah, person. No. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of my job. My other job, I do have a title of policy advisor for food security. So when the there governor, go. um, yep. Yeah, so when the governor used his um, administrative order to create this office within the governor's office, because essentially, as we talk to more and more people and more and more stakeholders, you know, food security touches so many agencies across state government. There's so many stakeholders that are involved that, in order to really kind of have a coordinated effort, get people out of their silos, um, he felt it was best to have a dedicated position within the office that could help, you know have the interactions with these folks, bring him information, bring him policy recommendations, in addition to, of course, what the Food Security Task Force was working on. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in implementing a lot of these recommendations. But one thing when you read, there was a 2014 report that the Food Policy Council was involved with that was com uh, uh, commissioned under the Parnell administration. You know, a lot of these recommendations are the same as they were in 2014, <laughs> like, as they are in, in Right. We told you to do these things seven years ago, but, you know, who's listening? Let's let's commission another report uh, that pays. Yes. Let's pay for another report. The Alaska study industry is in great hands. Uh, all right. Well, <laughs> yeah. It, and, you know, the interesting thing about that, though, is, you know, the budgetary situation obviously changed. And then so things like the farm to school program were one of the the things that got put on the chopping block, um, you know, under under the Walker administration. I mean, and, you know, and certainly there was there was lots of vetoes then. You know, this governor has had to make lots of vetoes. Uh, it's it's one of those things where the, the here and now and these immediate things, some, right. you know, end up taking the precedence over sort of long range planning. And so I think this governor in his second term really wants to set the framework and the infrastructure in place to to put these sort of recommendations into place finally. All right. Well, good. Well, let's uh, get to it. Uh, hold the line for just a second. Andrew Jensen, our sure. guest. Uh, we're going to jump back uh, into it here. Uh, the Michael Duke Show. Hour two is dead ahead. Please like and share the show. Like and follow the show page. Make sure you subscribe and ring the bell on YouTube because a Facebook kicks me off for apparently hate speech because I shared an article from the Alaska Beacon. Um, you may have to go look somewhere else for it, I guess. That's how it, uh, that's how it's looking. All right. We're going to be back. Let's get started. Here we go.
buddy. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Oh yeah, across the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to the audio-only live stream, the podcast, the simulcast on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, and everything else, and broadcasting live across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station, and or FM translator, all the way from Unalaska, all the way up to North Pole, in the interior, it is The Michael Duke Show, trying to bring you entertainment, education, and enlightenment all in one fell swoop. Uh, that's what we try and do every day. This is a guest we've been waiting for. We've been getting a lot of conver- a lot of uh, requests and conversations have been happening about the idea of food security and food sustainability, which we'll try and get definitions on here in just a moment. Uh, but we're talking about this new report that just came out in February uh, for the Alaska Food Security and Independence Task Force. It was a report that was put together by the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks and the Alaska Food Policy Council for the governor's new task force on this. Uh, joining us to discuss and to uh, explain to us this meaty report and what we can do, hopefully bring it down, break it down for us a little bit Barney style, uh, is the uh, governor's policy advisor on food security and uh, one of his uh, one of his folks that deals with press uh, press issues and everything else, Andrew Jensen uh, joins us this morning, and uh, he comes on to discuss it. And uh, we say good morning to him. Good morning, sir. Thanks for coming on board. Good morning, Mike. Uh, good, uh, thanks for having me on. Well, I appreciate that. So, uh, first and foremost, Andrew, let's talk. Uh, you just just so folks understand, can you give us what is the definition of Foods I've seen them used almost interchangeably. Food security, food sustainability. Can you can you give me a give me an idea of what we're when I say those things, what do we actually mean from a I guess a governmental standpoint or a task force standpoint? What do those things mean? Well, you know, food security it is it is a very broad term. You're right. I mean, there's um, some people think of it as having, you know, uh, an emergency store of food, um, but uh, the the way it's it's really looking at it is, you know, continual, dependable, reliable access to fresh, healthy, nutritious food that's affordable and uh, regularly available to to everyone. And so this is an issue, uh, not just in Alaska, um, but across the United States. You know, you hear a lot of things about, you know, food deserts and you know, the, the lack of nutritious or, or fresh produce, healthy foods, that kind of thing. Alaska, we are obviously so much more challenged because we are at the end of a very long and very fragile supply chain where we know that, you know, one storm, one missed barge delivery, one, one ship that doesn't make it into Anchorage, you know, on these just-in-time delivery systems. And we see it happen very regularly where the stores 
Uh, the store shelves can be wiped out in a, in a very quick period of time. So the idea of food security is that we uh, have the, the supply chain in place, the resiliency in place, and the access to local and affordable uh, food so that um, you can go about your daily life without having to make you know, the priority of the day. Well, what am I going to eat? How am I going to find food? Or how am I going to afford food? Well, I don't, I don't want to be too discouraging, but it just sounded like in part of that definition, like you're looking for a unicorn. You want fresh, healthy food that is affordable, which, I mean, we know in this day and age, even in places where agriculture is in their backyard, that's a hard thing to get. I mean, because fresh, you know, produce, organic, that kind of stuff, it's always more expensive and it's always, you know, cheaper to do things. We here in Alaska, of course, are even in a bigger issue because we do not have the economy of scale. To be able to make it, you know, it's always going to be cheaper to ship it up from outside than it is to create our own infrastructure and do that. So, I mean, that that's always, I think, been part of the challenge, but it's not like we, we, we don't need to do it in the case of some kind of emergency or something else. So let's talk about the report itself. Uh, what, you know, the, you mentioned during the, during the break before we came on the air that there was another task force that was back in 2014 uh, that was instituted by Governor, then Governor Parnell, that came to a lot of the same conclusions that this task force came to. So we're kind of retreading what we've gone over. But what did this? What does this 160-page report tell us in general? Give us the high points because again, we don't have a lot of time with you, unfortunately. But give us the high points of what it does, and then I want to talk about how we, as listeners or as citizens, can you know work with the, within that framework, so to speak. So give us the high points here. Sure. So, you know, and that's interesting, you know, because when I first started getting into the um, this work in, in policy and digging into the food security issues, and I came across that that report from 2014, it was it was some work between the Department of Health and the Alaska Food Policy Council. And then they brought in some uh, an outside uh, expert to help put this together. And, you know, what really stands out is the you know, the state in the past, I think, has tried to build the infrastructure themselves, whether it's a dairy or a meat processing plant, or you know the the, the infamous empty um, grain bins that are um, over at Valdez, and I think what what's really come to the fore is that what government needs to do in this case is not to go out and try to build these things itself, but to create the policies and the incentives that will allow the people who want to produce food in the state to do it. You know, we have you're right, we do have a high cost of production uh, in Alaska, and you're right that. You know, in, in many ways, it's it's always going to be cheaper to ship it in, which is it's really counterintuitive when you think about the distance that this food has to travel. And, you know, I've, I've talked to folks, um, there's folks at the Division of Agriculture, he's third generation Alaskan going back to the actual colony, uh, colony days in the 30s. And, you know, he remembers, you know, what how little the produce there was back in the 80s. You know, we did have 50 dairies up here, but eventually the logistics and the supply chain caught up enough to where it was cheaper to bring a gallon of milk from outside than it was to produce a gallon of milk in Alaska. But, you know, the, 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 the point, though, to that is that, and, and very broadly speaking nationally, is that cheap food has become a very expensive problem. When you look at the highly processed food, all the added sugar, that, that goes into the food we eat. I mean, I think 60% of the food at the grocery store has some level of added sugar in it. And so cheap food has created very expensive problems. So on, on a lot of levels, we're gonna have to use, where, whether it's, it's the, the way Medicaid funding can work to use new, you know, to fund nutritional meals for people versus the, the, the sources that they have to rely on. I think we're gonna have to 
come to um, the grips of the fact that that spending a little more on fresher food locally, the closer it is produced uh, to the source, um, we're going to be healthier as a society, and that can produce cost savings, you know, over the long run in in lesser health bills. So I think what what the task force report really looks at when when you look at where the government can use its institutional buying power because that's one thing that our farmers and producers struggle with is is having the market and if you don't have the market then you don't have the capital to expand and produce more and then because then if you don't produce more then you don't have the economies of scale to bring your price down to where it can become more competitive so i think that when you look at where the, the government can incentivize through its market power through its procurement power i mean the state you look at the state of Alaska, there's around 200,000 people per day during the school year that get some kind of government paid for meal, whether that's a school lunch, whether that's at the Pioneer Homes, whether that's on military bases, uh, Department of Corrections. The state has a tremendous amount of buying power. And so rather than the state go out and try to build certain things like building farms or building meat processing plants, what the state needs to do is become the buyer for the local producers. And the more the state can buy from local, then they have the ability to grow their production, put more into the local grocery stores. And then that gives people the choice when they go to the store and look at the shelf and decide, do I want the locally grown, fresher, more nutritious product or the cheaper product? And so, you know, that's one of those things where I look at our craft brewing industry. I mean, look at our craft brewing industry. Um, it's definitely more expensive than, you know, Bud or Miller or Coors, but yet these industries are thriving because people have demonstrated they're willing to pay more for a glass of beer. So if we're willing to pay more for a glass of beer, surely we can, we can um, pay more for our, our food um, when it's healthier, nutritious, and, and keeps that money in the local economy. Well, I mean, I, I again, I support the idea of creating more of a sustainable infrastructure in the state here. I'd, I'd love to see more uh, uh, resiliency in our supply chain locally. I mean, there was a point, you know, it was that tipping point where we had enough agriculture and dairy and everything else to be able to feed most of Alaska. And then we tipped over the edge and it went the other way. And that happened 40, 40, 50 years ago. So it's, it's hard to come back from that. And what you're talking about, unfortunately, is a little bit amorphous because you know, there's the fiscal reality of people saying, I only have $5 to buy groceries and I'd love to buy this, but I only have $5. And the health the health offsets that you're talking about, which are real, there's no doubt about it. There's the health offsets of eating non-processed food is much better. But there is a reality also that we just don't, we just can't afford, I mean, stuff's expensive. Foods, especially in Alaska, is expensive. And so how do we how do we, how do we find that balance? How do we how do we do that? What are the recommendations of this? Uh, I mean, yes, get government out of the way, reduce regulations. I mean, the one thing that I've continually heard about is the number of USDA certified slaughterhouses that people can raise cattle and raise beef in Alaska, but they can't get it to a facility that because there's not enough facilities to do it. You know, yada 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 because of regulation. Yeah. So I agree with those things, but what are some of the actual recommendations that they're saying we need to do? What are some of the actual solutions? Sure. And so one of the things that the, the among the recommendations is where the state can incentivize the creation of infrastructure because we lack cold chain, we lack storage uh, capacity to where, you know, if you have regional food hubs where uh, people can, where there can be shared processing, where there can be shared cold storage, they call it co-manufacturing in the, in the lower 48, where they can take in food deliveries from multiple different, you know, producers and they create multiple different products. 
You know, obviously we don't have Alaska baby carrots. We don't have Alaska tater tots. Even though we grow great potatoes and we grow great carrots, we don't have the processing infrastructure to actually have that food available year round. So these are, and then, and of course our transportation costs, as you mentioned, it's very expensive to move food around the state. And there are programs, you know, at the federal level that do offer support for uh, transportation reimbursement for, you know, far flung states, whether it's Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, where, so there are some programs in place that the state could look to model after. Because if the state can look to help reduce those input costs, the transportation costs, the cost of fertilizer, uh, then the Alaska products can come down to be competitive in price with the um, stuff that's being imported. You know, because obviously we've been such a huge period of inflation for the last 18 months to two years that there was actually a, a point in time where, and there was the, the issue with some, I think it was, there was a, some disease going on with some hog farms down the lower 48 and pork became very short supply. So at that point, Alaska pork actually became cheaper than bringing it up from the lower 48. So I think there are examples where you can look at if we can lower our input costs for our farmers, that's where we can start to bring the costs down at the grocery store. And now it becomes competitive. So when people go to the store, they're not having to make a decision. Well, I'd like to support local, but it's two or three dollars more than the product brought from inside. So I think where the when you look at the task force recommendations, those are big pieces of it to to help build out things like cold chain warehousing, using the market power, you know, transportation cost support. Because if you look at anywhere in the lower 48, agriculture is subsidized. You know, we've we've made a decision policy wise, you know, at the federal level that food production is important enough that we need to, you know, that the government needs to support it to ensure we have a continuous supply, whether it's the crop insurance or well, whatever. There's a Fortunately, some of these incentives have been really, have led to some of these, you know, corn, sugar, et cetera, that have actually produced some of these unhealthy foods that we have. So I, we know that incentives work. We just have to put the right incentives in place. And so that's one thing that this task force report really tries to get into is creating the infrastructure that will allow farmers to grow because then they can get the economies of scale. We're not at, nobody's producing at capacity. We have 80,000 right. acres in Delta that are cleared, but only 5,000 acres that are really producing any. So tremendous amount of potential right. uh, in Alaska to use what we have. Well, I mean, we could do a whole show just on subsidies mm -hmm. for food and why that's causing some of the problems that we're dealing with here. But we're, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm down to the last three minutes, unfortunately, with you because we don't have a lot of time. What can if you want me to hang on for another segment? I mean, I'm here at the office. We can we can do another. Well, one if, if, you if you'd love to do that, I mean, I would love that because I think again, this is a subject that is so broad and so deep, and it's got so many facets that. I mean, we we definitely could could break. It would take us hours to break this all down, but I mean, at least. <laughs> You know, I'd like to get at least into one more segment. So I'll tell you what, we'll go sure, to break. I can hang up for another segment. All right. So we'll go to break and we'll come back here. Uh, Andrew Jensen is our guest. He's the governor's advisor on food security and food policy. We're going to talk with him as we continue. I want to talk about what we can do. I mean, you know, how can we help this? Uh, and we'll continue this discussion in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Back with more right after this. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. 
we dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. Okay, we're in the break right now. Andrew Jensen is our guest. Uh, we got uh, about uh, uh, four minutes, uh, four and a half minutes here uh, before we come back. Uh, Andrew, here is my challenge with everything that you just said. Uh, I agree 100% that what we need to do is we need to stop looking to government to pay the money to fix the problem. We need to open up the way for the private sector to do it. And that is going to require you know, kind of a deregulatory environment. It's going to, you know, if there needs to be a loan bank, some kind of revolving loan bank that government can participate in, that should be the extent of that participation, uh, whether they can co, you know, co-mingle things to create buying power for farmers, some kind of co-op that it's got a governmental stamp or something where they can combine to get lower. Th- I mean, I think those are all good things. But anytime you start talking about the government subsidizing anything, especially when it comes to food and agriculture, all we got to do is go the Delta Barley Project, the uh, the Matt uh, the Matt Nuska made dairy and slaughter. The whole, you know, I mean, we could just we can list off how government is not good at running these things or usually funding it. Usually, it becomes black holes. So we've got to find ways to make it, you know, to make it more um, attractive for the average citizen. And and like you said, if I go to the store with with fifty bucks, and uh, it's cheaper to buy. I'm not thinking about the long-term consequences of what I'm eating. Right. I'm thinking about how right. can I put food in front of my kids so mm-hmm. that they're not crying about how hungry they are. We're not necessarily thinking about those things. And we're definitely not thinking about the lack of the supply chain issues or anything else. Some of that things, some of those things came to light during COVID um, and it made a lot more people think about it. This is something I've been thinking about for years, but it made a lot more people think about it. Mm-hmm. But we've got to find some way to place those two things in people's minds more and make them think about it. Um, but it's hard again with the amorphous, it may affect me 10 years down the road because I ate frozen peas with sprinkled with right. sugar versus uh fresh peas, you know, made here. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of a, it's a hard thing. It is. And, you know, it's taken us, you know, it's taken us 50 years to get to this point with our dietary problems. And so it's going to take a, it's going to take a quite a bit of time to sort of undo the, the way things are, because it's a, the again because like you said, well the gov- the government got involved in subsidizing corn. You know they refuse to rein in the amount of added sugar that is in food. Uh, there's and, and that's where it's going to take time. We, it took a while to get into this place. It's going to take a while to get out of this place. I mean I think that the you know the Delta the barley project, you know. The lessons, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that. One of them, you know, typically in the way it was structured initially, you know, they had these, they had an open auction where a lot of people got overextended and then they didn't have, ended up, did not have the market that they thought they were going to need, right? They, they were thinking they were going to export this barley out of the state. That's why they built the bins in Valdez is because they were like, oh, we'll, we'll sell our barley to the lower 48 or whatever. Well, they couldn't be, they weren't competitive on price. And so all these guys got overextended at the very front end. Then they didn't have their market. They went belly up. The ones who have made it, I tell you what, those farmers up there in Delta, though, they are a pretty impressive bunch. What they what they managed to do with very little compared to what's available in the lower 48. You know, they don't have access to capital. They don't have access to the new tractors because you can't get service. You know, you're using old tractors that these guys can fix. 
right? right. These the 48, they've got these touch screens, they've got GPS, they're remote controlled, they're automated. And our guys are up there, you know, with, you know, 20, 25 year old equipment, you know, doing the best they can. And, and that's where um, we need to find ways. And that's one reason we, we put into the capital budget this year, uh, $3 million to upgrade the power lines up there, because the co-op is running on a diesel generator to dry the barley. You know, I mean, that's just a, <laughs> right. that's, that's, that's a huge input cost, yeah. which then raises, the cost of the food, then raises the cost of the meat at the shelf. And it's just those, all those follow on right. effects it's that we're trying to build out the infrastructure. Yeah, it's a trickle down effect for sure. All right. Uh, we're coming back to it. Andrew Jensen's our guest, uh, the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thinking Radio. Again, like and share, like and follow. Go to YouTube, subscribe, ring the bell in case they kick me off Facebook. I don't know if it's going to happen, but we'll see. Here we go. Jumping back in. Let's do it. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew. I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. That's right. Not your daddy's talk radio. It's mine. Sorry, that's how it works around here. All right, we're going to continue now. Andrew Jensen uh, from the governor's office. He is a policy advisor on food security and sustainability. We're talking about this report that came out for the governor's task force. And I guess, uh, I mean, this is such a beefy discussion uh, in so many ways, but I really want to talk about, um, and folks can go out and find the report uh, at the website, which is, I'm just going to tell you here, the website is alaskafoodsystems.com. That's the website where you can download the report and look at all the other additional resources they have, alaskafoodsystems.com, if you want to go take a look at it, this big 160-page report with all the information and everything else. Uh, plus, it's got huge amounts of appendices and everything else. Uh, but, uh, Andrew, I, I need to, you know, again, talk to me like I'm five here and explain to me how we, the listeners, can work towards our own, in our own ways, work towards supporting food sustainability and um, and, uh, and, and, and security. Now, again, uh, let me preface this whole thing, and I'm going to let you go hog wild here in a second, but we have seen... What's we are we are tied to the end of the supply chain. We're not somewhere in the middle. It's not easy. It's not good. We are at the very end. We have one way in and one way out of the state, essentially, and that's through the barge system. I mean, there are a few things trucked up, but I mean, if anything comes, and there was a big fear during COVID that they were going to shut down the port of Seattle, which would have you know created all kinds of problems here for us. But we see how fragile our infrastructure is for food. There's literally two days to three days worth of food on the shelf at any given time in any store. If there's a run on food, the store shelves will be empty in two days, period. And you, how long is it going to be till the next shipment comes in? Nobody knows. But this is why we've talked on this program in the past about, you know, you should have, you know, food storage and you should have these things and you should have some plans and you should have all this kind of stuff, but that's just part of it. There's a bigger, broader picture here. We need to build this out, build out the system so, again, explain to us, how can we as listeners, as citizens, as consumers in the state, how can we support food security slash sustainability in the state of Alaska? 
Well, you know, I mean, that that is a tough one because, you know, I remember and, and you're probably old enough to remember, too. But, you know, my parents, you know, they they canned, you know, and preserved a lot of food, you know, and they because they were, you know, the, the children of, of parents from the Depression. And that was just a routine thing. But, you know, that that was something that, you know, through no fault of their own. It was just a matter of convenience. That wasn't necessarily that was something that was passed along to to us as kids, because now, you know, there's plenty of food at the store. There was never anything to worry about. You know, you go to the store, it's there. And so some of those skills for canning, for preserving, for, you know, keeping, you know, some meals frozen, prepared in your, in your freezer, a lot of that stuff has, has just kind of gone by the wayside because our supply chain became so efficient. And, and but it was based on a just-in-time delivery model. And we saw during COVID how quickly the just-in-time model can break down. And we are such at the mercy of that, that, that yes, in Alaska, and, you know, folks have known this for, you know, our, you know, our Alaska native folks for thousands of years have understood this. And that's why they have been very good at storing and preserving food, you know, to, so they can make it through the winter seasons and, and everything. And so I think we need to sort of get back to what the roots of this state are. Um, it's, it's something of necessity and it's not something and it's fresh enough in our memory that we should not be able to fall back into uh, taking food for granted because I mean, it just a couple weeks ago during a winter storm, you know, that all the milk was gone, you know, and, and that's one of those things where um, it's, it's, it happens enough that everybody, I mean, I, you know, during COVID I went out and I bought, you know, about six months worth of, um, you know, freeze dried uh, food, you know, that can be reconstituted just with boiling water and that kind of thing. So, I thought about it then and it was this the inspiration to me and so i think that just alaskans in general we have this drills every year with you know the earthquake preparedness have a have your emergency kit right you want to have an emergency kit in your car you want to have something in your home we have to have the same thing for food and you know and we do even though we do have challenging climates in alaska there are ways to grow your own food there are ways to grow and preserve your own food we do have um, an abundance you know in some cases of wild game that, that's available at the lower 48 that many people do not. So we, we really have to think about that. And, and then again, the, the more we can develop local producers, the less vulnerable we are. I know that, uh, do you know the Alaska Flower Company uh, there in, in, in Delta, the, uh, the, the Wrigley's? So during, the, during COVID, I don't, down here in Anchorage, I don't know what it was like there. For whatever reason, flour, you, you couldn't find flour. And so there was, you know, Fred Myers and cars were calling up to, to Bryce Wrigley and saying, can we get some flour? So I think that, that there's enough like just those little anecdotes here and there to realize that the way we really are going to be able to insulate ourselves from this, because not everybody's going to be able to can and preserve and have a winter or a month's worth of food on hand in their house. Um, but the more we have local production, the less vulnerable we will be. And so over time, we really need to work to build that up because you know, the estimates are something like $2 billion of food is brought into the state. I mean, $2 billion is a lot of market power that we could develop up here and keep that money in the state. And so that's one thing about this governor and certainly being into a second term who is determined to address many things, for whether it's energy security, whether it's food security, whether it's, you know, some of our healthcare outcomes. This is very high on his priority list, and, and we need to start laying the groundwork, and it won't be done in four years, 
but we can lay the groundwork now to really support the, the local production because that's going to be the key. But there's all kinds of things people can do in their backyard garden or, you know, there's indoor growing things. There's you right. know, just skills for canyon preservation um, and freeze drying. Uh, people really, you know, that's supposed to be the Alaska spirit, right? Where you're supposed well. to be independent reliant and uh we just need to sort of get back to that i think well you're talking about your parents being from the depression generation i'm third generation alaskan right my grandmother was born up on american creek up a you know way north of fairbanks and everything else so i mean if people looked at my life from the outside you know back even 20 years ago they would have said my god this guy's a doomsday prepper well no it's just because my grandmother was born where in a place where a trip to the store was a two-week venture so they always had my grandmother was 80 years old living in a condo and she still had six months worth of food on the shelf in her kitchen in this little condo because that's just how she was raised and that's how we were raised you know it's just called in alaska being prepared now but most people don't think about that andrew that's the problem you ask some of the yeah. You ask some of the Zillennials or whoever, you know, where does meat come from? And they're like, oh, the little pink plastic trays in the store. That's where it comes from. They have no idea, no concept. Uh, they don't understand the just-in-time delivery challenge of, it's yes, it's efficient. Yes, it's great. Yes, it maximizes profitability. But it also creates scarcity, and it's a very fragile system. You know, a cascade failure uh, in a just-in-time delivery system is very easy to trigger. And most people just don't understand that. So I guess my question becomes, is this more about educating the public than it is about, I mean, yes, we need to deregulate. Yes, we need to do that. Uh, I don't think we need to spend a ton of government money on all these different things. But is it more about educating people on the challenges and why? What are the benefits of being self-sustaining, of having a, a victory garden or a regular garden or canning or putting food on the shelf? Is that what is that really the bottom line of what needs to happen? I think so. And, and that is one of the. Uh, the components of the task force report and it's one of the things that's even mentioned in the ao is that education is really going to be the key to this and i think educating within our schools you know at from the elementary school level on we can teach children how to prepare food we can then then people can learn skills people can get into programs like future farmers and go into it because that's a challenge you know we have a lot of aging farmers just like we have an aging fleet, you know, in our seafood industry, we need to get more young people who see a future in farming or in food production. And so I do believe you're right in that education, because kids take that stuff home, right? I mean, isn't that, you know, that's one of those things where right. um, there's the stuff around parental rights and everything else right now is like, it does matter what we teach kids in school. And I think that teaching things like nutrition, I think teaching things like food preparation, how to even prepare foods that you might think are not healthy there you know you might not have access to fresh fruit but canned fruit you can wash the syrup off and still have some good nutritional content from that frozen peas as long as they're not covered in sugar like you mentioned but frozen peas can have the same nutritional value as fresh peas and so so teaching kids at a young age about nutrition about food preparation how to take care of themselves and also teaching them here in Alaska the vulnerabilities that we have and why it is important to have you know a store of food on hand i think that is where you start to change things is by education not through right you know a, a mandate or anything but but to just bring that awareness yeah and the challenge is of course you just mentioned about the two billion dollars in food imports into the state every year 
and what a market share that is and what you know what if that 2 billion dollars was locally and, and the problem is is that the 2 billion dollars brought in would cost 3 billion if we produced it here locally right now that's the challenge is the, is that cost offset and um you know somebody in the chat room uh, Jerica just said stop telling kids that agriculture isn't profitable but unfortunately because of government intervention and subsidies and all, it is it's it's become unprofitable in a lot of ways without the government propping it up because you know they've interfered in the market in so many ways for decades or you know almost a hundred years at this point. So it is difficult, but we've got to find a way to think outside the box. And there are different things, you know, there's aeroponics and aquaponics farms that are popping up across the state and doing things. These are things you can do in your own house or your own garage yes. or whatever uh, in, in harsh climates. It, I mean, it won't be cheap, but it will be better and you will be sustained on your own, which I think is a good thing. But this is definitely, unfortunately, from my point of view, because I would really like to see more food security, this is an uphill battle. This is an uphill battle. It is. There's, there's so many things. I mean, you know, you mentioned the cost of producing up here, you know, the, the cost of fertilizer, for example. I mean, I think right now, uh, when I was at the Delta Farm Forum back in March, I think this year, they're looking at around $1,100 a ton for fertilizer. Last year, I think it was around thirteen dollars to $1,400 a ton. Back when we had the plant running in Nikiski, it was about $400 a ton. So, so there are ways to bring our input costs down. You know, when, when we, if we can, you know, if, and that's one of those things when you look at the gas line, for example, if the feedstock gas reaches Nikiski, that plant can restart because the folks who own that, there's not a lot of new fertilizer plants that are being built, but they're being built where there's ability to capture carbon, first of all, because that's what everybody is concerned about. But you also have to be on tidewater and access, you know, to to um, uh, to a, a low cost feedstock gas. So if we could produce more fertilizer, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the ammonia and urea type fertilizers. There's a lot of work that's going on in terms of in the mariculture space, and you can also take fish meal from our plants and produce, you know, animal feed. You can produce fertilizer. There's um, a lot of work going on with uh, with kelp and different seaweeds that can be used as animal fertilizer. So the closer we bring our inputs as well, and cost of energy. That's another thing, yeah. you know, is it run the power. So there's, those are the pieces that feed into, like you mentioned, the $2 billion worth of food we bring in would cost $3 billion to make here. Well, how do we, the reason is the input costs. Right. The, the fuel cost, fertilizer costs, the energy costs, those kind of things. So if we can bring those inputs down, by because we have the resources within Alaska to produce those inputs. So we need to find out those ways to do it. And then that way we can bring the input costs down. Then we can, you know, make it more competitive for the farmers and, and easier for the consumer to pick local. Yeah. Well, and the challenge is you've now taken a big problem, food security and sustainability, and we've expanded mm -hmm. it even more because now we've got all these feeder things that have to come into it, low energy, gas, you know, all these other things. So it becomes a bigger problem. Um, well, I mean, it, 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 be, it the solution becomes a bigger tougher solution because it has so many other pieces but we've at least got to move forward on this uh, what are, here's what i hope andrew and we got just about two minutes here's what i hope you said again a lot of the same recommendations came out of the 2014 report that 10 years later came or nine years later come out of the 2023 report i'm hoping 
that we can implement some of these ideas that have been floating around for a decade and actually get some of those things going on. I'll give you the last uh, minute or two here to uh, sum up and uh, and wrap up for us. Absolutely. Well, 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 thanks again for having me today. And, and you know, and, and one of the things that passed last year was the HB 298, which created another two-year task force. And their job within the legislature um, is to carry forward these recommendations, you know, into, into reality. And the governor has, has told me multiple times that, you know, this session's over. He has got a big focus on ag and ag issues, you know, for this summer. We, we really want to study these things. And, you know, it's unfortunate that, you know, with, with the budget situation, you know, that's sucking all the oxygen up in, in Juneau right now. And so, and again, that's what always happens. That's what happened in 2014, right? right. We had these recommendations, then oil prices crash. And so, but the thing is, we have to keep focusing. We do have a governor who is extremely focused on this, and he's not going to take his eye off the ball on this. And so I think working with bipartisan group in the legislature and with his um, determination to turn these recommendations into reality, I think we can start to move forward. And so little wins can turn into big wins. We just sort of have to build some momentum around infrastructure and local sourcing and start to build the momentum in a different direction versus just accepting things as they are and say, well, it's expensive and it's gonna be tough to do it. We don't. Have, we have a governor who doesn't believe in that. And so I'm optimistic that we're gonna really take this report seriously and work with the legislature and put these policies um, in, into action because they were correct in 2014 and they're, they're still right. correct. Yes. Yeah. Andrew Jensen, the governor's advisor on food security. Andrew, thank you so much. Hold on. Uh, hold the line for just a second, folks. We're out of time. We got one more segment coming up. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Uh, okay, uh, Andrew Jensen, just uh, again, I guess kind of a final bite at the apple. I mean, what what you're talking about, Andrew, is it's very aspirational, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a lot of moving parts to make any of this work. And unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of us kind of roll our eyes when we say, oh, it's going to be another study, a study to study the study mm -hmm. that we studied before, you know, a commission report. There's a library somewhere with commission reports from one end to the yep. other. And yet we're going to mm -hmm. create another commission and a working group to study what we've already mm -hmm. done. We, 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 we've got to move forward somehow. We've got yes. to, we've got to move the needle. And that's the problem is that we get stuck in this loop of the analysis paralysis instead of actually moving forward on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, to I totally agree. And that's one thing we heard from some of the folks we brought up from outside um, that are in that are that are successful food producers and everything. And and they that was one thing that they said is like, you don't need any more information. You know what your needs are. You know what you need to do. So you need to go out and start doing it. And so that's one thing, you know, we're looking like, for example, I'm looking at the procurement code. Procurement code. You can buy an Alaska produced product, but only, but the limit on that is only if it's 7% more expensive than the other product. Well, right there, you're going to cut out a lot of Alaska product. Right. If, if it can only be 7% more expensive. So that's a simple thing. I think we're a lever we can pull where we can look at the state's buying power and say, okay, you know, us foods, you've got this contract with corrections or pioneer home or something like that. You can go up to 15% or something like that. 
to buy a local product. Right. It's preferred. It's preferred. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. And so they can. So right now, I think there's I think there's some simple levers we can look to pull um, in, 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 in a short term way as we try to build out some other right. pieces. Well, and I remember like DEC and some of these other departments, too, again, going back to the deregulatory side. Um, I had goats and I was talking about selling the goat milk and DEC was like cracking down on everybody. And I was going to be the I was going to be the goat milk outlaw because I didn't care what they said, you know, like a 40 page worth of regulations on selling raw milk and everything. I'm like, like people don't know that it's raw. You're telling them that it's raw. It's not like it's a secret. Sure. We need to get government out of the way of that stuff. People are willing to do I what they need. I think they, they actually did put those, they did reform those regs, didn't they? I think there is a... I think, some there, of, I think some of it got cut out. I still think that there's some in there. But yeah, I mean, we need more of that, more deregulation. Yeah. You know, people... It's caveat emptor, you know, buyer beware, you know, it's raw, it's not pasteurized, you know, you got to be careful, yada, yada, yada. I mean, all these kind of things. But that's just one example where they were kind of, you know, pinching off the ability to supply those kind of things. Yeah. We, need, we need more of that. Um, we, mm -hmm. we do need. Yeah. That. And there's a lot of folks, you know, that they, they make those products in their garage where they sell them at the, the farmer's markets. So what and because to, to, to get their own DEC licensed kitchen. The permit itself is very expensive, but then also they don't really can't afford to have to build out their own space. So you can do things like a community kitchen. For example, I mean, what I'm looking at is like, well, why aren't we using the Anchorage School District kitchen, make that available on weekends? And if right. people want to come and make their product, they can do it in a licensed facility. Now they can sell it in a more beyond the farmer's market. Right. They could sell stores because it was produced in a DEC licensed kitchen. Makes sense. So so yeah. we so I think that that's one of those things where we're looking at where, where can we hit like some low hanging fruit, use existing infrastructure rather than build something like Palmer. Same thing. Palmer's got a massive industrial kitchen. Why aren't we making that available to the community when the school's not using it? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it's right. already right. It's already paid for. It's already got, you know, I mean, but that's just too common sense, I think, for many people. Well, we just can't do that because that'll cause problems. And that, you know, I mean, it'll. I'm sure it'll be an issue somewhere down the road. All right. We're, we're, we're uh, looking at it. Though. Well, so, uh, yeah, um, feel free to reach out anytime. I'm happy to come back on, um, uh, you know, down the line. We can you know, certainly update this and keep the conversation going. I appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you for coming on board and uh, joining us and, uh, I guess, at least giving us a thumbnail of what's going on because this is a much deeper issue. This, is, this could be a week of shows at that point. So thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for coming on board. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks, Michael. All right. All right. Thank you. Uh, that is uh, Andrew Jensen from the governor's office, his uh, advisor for food policy and food security policy. Uh, I mean, this issue is just I mean, it's it's big. It's deep. It's complex. Uh, we didn't we hardly scratched the surface on this thing. Hardly scratched the surface. And while I like um like I uh, uh, agree with Andrew's point is on people need to look at the, for example, the health benefits of fresher, better local foods. That's very amorphous for many people, because, again, they're worried about just putting food on their kids' plates and, uh, you know, and having the food there for, you know, they're just worried about that part of it. Um. Anyway. It's a, uh, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting.
Here we go. We're going to jump back into it. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share. Like and follow the show page. And uh, let's, let's do it. Here we go. I mean, this is a topic that I'm fascinated by, and um, is very, very complex. Um, I, you know, the the problem, and as as uh, Andrew Jensen pointed out at the very beginning, you know, the, the problem is is that we're eating a you know, a lot of processed foods. You know things that are that are are cheap and getting through there. But when you know a lot of times when an average parent walks into a grocery store, it's not like they're intending to hurt their themselves or their children or anybody else by buying the food. But they're looking, you know, they've only got a finite amount of money when they walk into this grocery store to to get food. And if you got a bunch of, I mean, I could tell you, you know, my my food bill with five kids at home. I mean, that's not a cheap food bill, right? I mean, your fifteen hundred bucks a month is not a cheap food bill when you're looking at it that way. Sometimes higher, sometimes lower, but pretty close to fifteen hundred bucks every month. And we try to do the best we can, but at some point you'll be like, nope, this is quick and easy and cheap, and we're gonna do it. So the idea of trying to educate people on where food comes from and what the health benefits are, I mean, that may have some effect. But for some people, it's just out of their reach. It's just out of the realm of possibility. So while I think it needs to be part of the solution, I mean, I don't think that it's going to achieve the success, uh, even if you had a huge educational campaign and told people, I mean, there's already stuff out there talking about, you know, buy uh, fresh and organic and local and all that stuff. And and people would love to do it, but again, it's much more expensive. If you go to a farmer's market, you can look at the stuff, the, the produce that they have, and it's beautiful produce. Don't get me wrong. It's beautiful produce, but um, and but it's expensive. Not that I'm complaining to the people who are trying to sell it. I mean, it costs money to make that stuff, but when you have to make that decision of full plates versus half plates, of food for your kids, you know, healthy versus un, you know, a lot of people are just saying, "Yep, it's what's cheap and easy. I'm going to I'm going to do it." You know. It's it's very frustrating. And then again, the mindset of people, uh, I mean, even Andrew said during the um <laughs> you know, the the mindset, even he coming from parents of a depression era, you know, who who stocked and canned and jarred a lot of food and did all that stuff, even he, at the height of the pandemic, when the supply chain started to break down, even he said, well, I went out and bought six months worth of food because that should be, quite honestly, you should have six months worth of food on your shelf no matter what, whether it's a crisis or not. 
one of the commenters in the chat room, Jerrica, just said, we've tried pushing educational material for years. It doesn't work. People don't care until there's a crisis. Now, that's true. I mean, that's human nature, though. Right? That's human nature. So we need to change our mindset as Alaskans to be Alaskan. Like I said, if if somebody had spied on my life even 20, 25 years ago, you know, when my, my wife and I were first married and raising kids, we always had food storage. Why? Well, because my parents always had food storage. Because my grandmother always had foods. I mean, it wasn't food storage. It was just food. We didn't know it was called survivalism or prepping or whatever it was called because that's just how we were raised. That you didn't just, you know, you may not have the opportunity to go to the store. You may not, you know, whatever. It was just habit force. And I'm blessed with that. I'm very thankful for that. Because it it set that in my mind um, to begin with. But the problem is, is that many, many people don't think about where the next meal is coming from. Because to them, it's just a trip to the store, a few bucks. I mean, how many of you listeners out there right now go to the grocery store two or three times a week to pick up food? And I'm not just talking about fresh produce. Because if you want fresh produce, you probably have to go to the store at least twice a week to make sure that it doesn't rot by the time you eat it. I mean, it's the produce in this state, unless it's Alaskan-grown produce in season— but out of season stuff, it's just it's difficult. It, it it's just tough. But outside of fresh produce, how many of you are just going to the store to pick up a single bag of groceries? You know, just enough to make dinner for the next two days, and just enough make you know, and and then the next two weeks, it, it you know, you've got to kind of get out of that cycle. I mean, my wife makes a trip to Costco every. Two weeks, sometimes every third week she makes a trip. But, I mean, each one of those trips is $700 or something, right? Because we continue to stock up. We rotate. We've got food on the shelf. We've got the canned goods. We've got the freeze-dried. We've got all the different things. And, yes, I do even have some other, you know, MREs or Mountain House or whatever, some other stuff that in an emergency you could eat on and everything else. But I've got a lot of food that is components, you know, freeze-dried vegetables, freeze-dried fruit, freeze-dried, you know, meats and things like that that's shelf-stable. Sure, I've got those things, but I use those on a on a weekly basis as well in our meals and everything else so that we understand how to use them. And it's just it's just a habit. And unfortunately, there's many, many people out there that just don't think about it that way. And some people, you could point it right to their faces and look at the crises and do everything else, and they still would not change. So this is going to be an uphill battle. There's no doubt about it. Uh, I think the government deregulation on many of these things in the industry would help. I would not be against the government uh, helping people pool their resources as far as like a co-op or something where they can buy supplies, materials together as a group to get a bigger discount. Um, Utilizing facilities, Uh, Andrew was just talking about, why don't we allow, uh, you know, like raw milk farmers and dairy farmers uh, or small, you know, hobby farm people who've got one or two cows to take their milk products and use 
you know, like school facilities on the weekend or other public kitchens that are all DEC certified to make their product. I mean, why don't we allow that? That would make sense. That would expand their growth and reach beyond farmers markets, et cetera. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunities there, but it's going to be an uphill battle. It's going to be hard. I mean, I, I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm looking at what's happening and it's going to be hard. And then, of course, you got all the folks who are like, well, I bought my six months worth of food supply, emergency food supply from Glenn Beck or whoever, you know, whoever's selling. Well, that's great, except those are foods that you're not eating right now. You store what you eat. You eat what you store. Because in a crisis situation, if you start feeding your body stuff that it's not used to or you don't know how to use it, you don't know how to make it. And, you know, it, it nothing is worse than a crisis than those kind of things happening. So maybe that's our next move is to start talking about the, the the food storage, the details of it, how it all needs to come forward. I think that I think that's probably going to be our next our next go round. But we'll continue these discussions anyway, folks. Uh, we're out of time for today. We will continue tomorrow for Firearms Friday. Jacob Solomon will be our guest from Reason Magazine and Chris Chang. We'll see you then. Okay, my friends. Well, I mean, I I wanted so much more on the just to just and I'm glad he stayed for an extra segment 20 minutes was barely scratched the surface on anything at this point this is going to be a continuing discussion how do we support the idea of more Alaska agriculture manufacturing you know livestock stuff you know creating a food supply that we can depend on maybe not one that is all self-sustaining and feeds everybody now but at least in the event of a crisis can be scaled up to help feed us all. Mm. Uh, yes, you need a beer warehouse, Bill. Get that stockpile going. Get that stockpile going. It'll be worth more than gold one day. All right, my friends, we're out of time for today. We're going to be back uh, tomorrow. Again, Firearms Friday, Jacob Sullum from Reason Magazine, Top Shot Chris Chang, and Willie Waffle. We'll see you tomorrow, my friends. Have a great day. If you missed any of the show, Rick, you can go back and watch or you can listen to it on the podcast.
We've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. <laughs> 